Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. You're right. We're here for a limited time. Yes. We get to see this. We get to experience yeah, yeah. this. It's mm. it's it's uh, it's amazing. I mean, and 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 we forget about that in our busy, 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 crazy mm. lives. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are listening to my podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer. It is also a live Facebook event. It is also put up on YouTube and Twitter and many other platforms, as well as on three or four places where you get podcasts. So today I'm talking to a friend of mine, Mim Semft, and she is in Israel as we speak. Uh, what town are you sitting in right now? Uh, it's 8 p.m. here. No, I said town, not time. Oh, town. I am so sorry. I am in Tel Aviv. Yeah, see, this this is happening because a minute before we came and started our podcast here, I was joking about, you know, how do I pronounce your last name? And and you said semft, sort of like mustard. And then I was thinking, you know, for a terminal dyslexic, now right. it's going to be mim Dijon, you know, and I, I just, okay. So, you, you, you know, we started off with me feeling like I'm, I'm not going to get anything straight. All right. Now, um, recently, you had a loss in your family, which meant you extended your trip over there. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And tell me why you were in Israel to begin with, what sure. the connection is. You're sitting in a family property talking to me now. Uh, you've extended your trip. So give us a little snapshot of the personal situation, and then we'll get into who you are, and I'll introduce you properly. Sure, no problem. Yeah, um, like many people out there, uh, we're involved in caregiving for our parents mm -hmm. and um, had an emergency. My mother-in-law, unfortunately, broke her hip. Uh, end of October, early November, um, we were lucky enough with all this COVID stuff, but I managed to get over here to help support her. Like many of you know, it's very important to be in the hospital with people to make sure that they're getting the proper care. Um, and things got extended because we just needed to be here longer. We got her home, thankfully. She is mm. um, doing much better. And then unfortunately on January 15th, we lost my father-in-law um, who is or was 99 years old. Mm. Um, he would have been 100 on December 7th of this year. And so it's been um, a lot of family challenges, but I will say that, you know, you, you talk about this so much, and I think it's why we connect so much. The power of community and family around us through all of this has been um, just amazing. All my friends and colleagues out there, I just want to give a shout out. I've had so much support, and I'm so grateful, really. I mean, this is what's most important in life, particularly when you go through these kinds of situations. Yeah. And, you know, normally I wouldn't dive in like that, but actually your situation right now is just sort of a very good segue to the fact that I can introduce you as managing director 
of mo motivity, motivity care. Motivity, motivity care. Motivity. See, I was about to say motivation there. So, you, you know, we've started well, on the thing. Be here. motivated. Right? Yeah, motivity <laughs> care, and yeah. it's a caregiving management company. So, before we we go any more, will you tell me what a caregiving management company does? Great. Well, let me take two steps back. I think um, you know the vast majority of us. Mm. Uh, we want to take good care of ourselves. We want to stay independent. You know, we want to age well. Um, but the reality is that most of us don't have all the pieces of the puzzle in place. Um, and it changes at different stages of aging. So you might be 45 or 50 or 55. You have a home, you have children, maybe you're starting to have to support older members of your family. Um, but when you start to get into crisis situations or let information kind of lapse, it, this is when it can become very overwhelming very quickly. And so Motivity Care was formed because we want to take the complexity out of this and um, making sure that people are respected, that their wishes are respected, that everybody in the family can be connected or whatever, however you define family. Um, but we want to take the pain out of this and uh, make sure that you have what you need when you need it. How does that work practically? In other words, day to day, you know, I, I'm a writer, which means every few years I produce a book. That's what I do. So I'm mm -hmm. either sitting here alone in my studio office writing or in the old days, I was out on the road doing college speaking and I both earned my living. And also that's what I'm invested in. Aside from my family, that's what I do. It's my vocation. So day to day, what do you do with this caregiving uh, company? And practically, how do you help people? So somebody links to this, they're watching now. They say, I've got a mom who's getting very old. I want to talk to Mim about this. We're going to link to everything you want to link to in this interview. So we don't have to give the nuts and bolts because everyone's going to get it anywhere they can find this. But that said, just tell me how this works. Like, for instance, my mom died when she was 98. She mm -hmm. spent the last 10 years of her life living in a little apartment across from my sister. Um, Debbie went over every day and helped out. How would have you advised us, say, in the five or six years before that all unrolled to tell us how to set that up? And how would you practically have done it? One-on-one, -on -one, uh, written material? How to, Just tell me what you do. Sure, absolutely. And it's a great question. First and foremost, we want to take the time to figure out what you have in place now, where the gaps are. And it's really important because every situation is a little bit different, different family dynamics, different needs, different cultural backgrounds, different mm. spiritual practices, depending on you know, who you are. So even before you become a client, uh, we take the time to do an assessment with you. It's a short assessment, about 15, 20 minutes maximum. Mm. You can do it with one of us. You can do it on your own if you so choose to do that. We take a look at that. And then we're going to get on a call with you for 30 minutes. And, and have what might some of the questions in that assessment be? Good question. So we really like to take a 360 view. It's not just medical. It's not just legal. Um, we bleed over into personal information. So what do I mean by that? So medical, you think of, you know, what we typically do, right? So your medical records, what prescription drugs are you on? But there are other questions that normally um, can be vital and are not asked. Is English your first language? Are you an introvert extrovert? Are you a morning person? Are there specific food preferences um, that you need to talk about? We want to find out as we spend time with you, what are some of your favorite songs? Why is that important? 
because anybody that has memory loss, this is one of the key ways. And if we can talk to you now about it, all these things are already set up. But then you think about the myriad of legal things that you might have to deal with. I mean, first and foremost, please, if you do not have a will in place, I cannot overemphasize. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be fairly simple, but the pain that you can prevent for your family members, um, I I have been through this personally, and it it is one of the reasons I'm so passionate, but we go beyond that. Do you have healthcare directives in place, power of attorney, things like divorce decrees and marriage decrees and um, social security numbers? And, and, you know, and again, it's up to you as to what you want to, you know, what you want to put in Mm -hmm. place. And then there's personal information. So you may have a great contact list, right? But in an emergency, who are the top three people that need to be called in that moment? Who's the list of family members, which is that secondary list that you might need um, or someone might need? And then it also depends um, on household. So if, if you have a person that has a housekeeper or you have somebody that's a handyman, you know, all these different pieces of the puzzle that make your life important. We're going to ask you, do you have a pet? And we want to know. So who's going to take, take advantage of this work you're doing if the person you're doing it for falls ill or has Alzheimer's or memory loss of some kind? Where does this information go where it can be accessed, but at the same time, guarantee some privacy for someone? Because now you're, you know, you're, you're basically, we're giving you the family farm here. We want to know, A, is it safe? But B, how does my son Francis get personal here? I'm, I'm 70 uh, next August. Let's say we do this together, um, Mim, sometime, and I go through the whole process. Okay, where does this information go? And God forbid, when I get old and crazier than I am now, how does Francis access this so he can care for me better? Or who is supposed to be able to access this kind of hospital if I'm in an emergency room and I'm, can they, can this somehow be found? Is it like wearing a, a, a bracelet with some medical information on? I mean, what practically, how does this work? So, so, that, so fun. we have, we, so you can carry this with you. Um, and we also have, it's, it's also available on desktop, but I love that you asked the security question. So as somebody that, um, over the course of my career, uh, I worked on site at Goldman Sachs under the Optum umbrella. Um, I worked for national financial partners. I worked at financial firms, level of security Mm. is top of mind for us. And I mean, everybody is worried about this. So it's a really good question. The platform that, um, you put this information in is bank level security, So it is the highest level of security that you could possibly have on a platform. What makes it unique is that each section, you decide who gets to see what, when. I see. You can decide down to a document. So you may have family members that want medical, like maybe somebody has an aide that's taking care of them. So maybe the aide should have that information Mm -hmm. and maybe one or two other people. You may only want certain people to know legal information. Yeah. Good question here. Uh, Intervene again. Um, is this something that would be set up with someone who let's say has an elderly parent and the person caring for them now has to answer these questions because they didn't jump into your program when they were my age and still could remember something. Now they're, they're pushing into their nineties. Their daughter-in-law is the only person who's really doing anything. She knows there's a lot of stuff that needs to be collected. She contacts you. They're not really as available anymore how far down the chain of command do you get and still get useful, useful information? And typically, what kind of people are taking advantage of this? So answer that question, but then try to remember the other one, which was like, who, who does this right now? Like for real? Right. So for real, 
<laughs> I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm going to start with the story because this is yeah. real life experience. As I shared, we should, you know, we lost my father-in-law on January yes. 15th. So I'm going to paint the picture for you. Um, we were about 10 minutes away. The aide um, noticed that his breathing had changed dramatically. She hit the emergency button. She called us. We were there within 10 minutes. So we come in with the, right at the same time, the emergency, they start working on him. My mother-in-law, who's unfortunately, I mean, she was obviously upset. Um, we had my nephews there, grandsons, very close to their um, grandfather, my husband, yeah. his father. We are all in the room watching this. It is um, for anybody, and I've done this multiple times, it is a profound experience to be in the room um, when someone passes. And there are a lot of decisions in real time that have to get made. And it can be very, very emotional. He passes. Um, and now we have to decide who's going to pick up the body. I'm being very blunt because this is the yes, truth. Sure. And um, does he have a plot? Do Who do we call? So everybody's panicking. They can't find the information. I had put this information in our platform literally six weeks ago. Mm. We didn't have good internet access. I called my partner and I said, Karina, I need this information. Within three minutes, three minutes, we knew who to call, the numbers, we had the information that we needed. And, and this, had you put the information in with your father-in-law participating or were you gleaning this from no. other sources because he wasn't participating? No, he, at this point, he wasn't. This is me as a family member going in there and saying, Figuring okay, it what out. do we have to have in here? But it was what still useful to have it somewhere else when you needed it because how are you right. going to remember all that? Right, but are you going to remember that it's in the wallet that's hidden in the, you know, and if you've right, never been right. there, you don't know what, because look, let's, let's be realistic. This is hard stuff for people to talk about, right? Mm. It is. And we all think we're going to live forever. This is never going to happen to me, right? But, yeah. but I'm going to tell you that it is an incredibly loving thing to do for people. So whether you are 45, and I'm very serious about this, because I've said that we, you asked who uses this, right? Sure. You hope that nothing ever happens to you. One of the right. stories that, that I was told right. as we were developing this, they said, oh my God, did you hear about this couple? They were 50 out boating. And unfortunately they both died in a boating accident. Yeah. Okay. Their kids who are 20, 21, they have not a clue. They didn't even know who their lawyer was. Yeah. Like there are such basic things. And so our, our heart piece of this is say, let us help you. We hope this doesn't happen to you at 50. Yeah. yeah before we- you wind up shuffling through boxes full of, files or scraps of paper in your mom's bedroom trying to see how how did all this get put together exactly and that's what we call it multi-generational right Mm -hmm. so it's good for you to have and you may not need as much information but if you're going to care for your parent or a loved one or loved one have it for you have it for them and i think the other thing that over time is going to be really great we want to know medical histories historically, right? We know more and more about this. This is another piece of this that over the long haul, you're going to be able to have this information at your fingertips. The other thing is that we've added in a heart, what I call really a heart piece to this. You can save things like handwritten recipes and favorite pictures and stories, short videos of people. Imagine if you could hear stories from your grandparents. Mm-hmm. about their childhood. These are gifts that you can give to the future. So it's not just for the emergency piece of this. That's why we, we constantly say this is a 360 view of yeah. your life. And the other thing is that you can get all of this set up the right way. And again, we're here to handhold you and make sure that you have this in the right way. But maybe the most important part is that things change. 
Hmm. So we're here to walk you through that. We're here to remind you and do a yearly call with you and say, was another grandchild born? Yes. Did you add them to your will? Do you want to yes. add them to your will? Did your POA, the person, your power of attorney, are yeah. they still there? Are they close? Yeah. If you had a neighbor on your emergency contacts, are they still hmm. there? Yeah. We don't think about what, What's changed in your life? Have you moved? You know, what's going on here? Yeah, no, I understand that. Now, uh, uh, when did you start... Um, Motivity care. Really good question. So we are fairly new. Mm. <laughs> um, this honestly, my my partner and um, and co-founder Karina Mueller, she and I have worked together um, professionally for more than ten years. Um, yeah. we have both got extensive experience in benefits design, um, working as senior leaders. Uh, we've done a lot of strategy design around benefits. We've worked with a lot of technology platforms. Have you have you been in the same things. geographical space, or were you? Yes. Where, where, do you, where do you live when you're in the States? So I live north of New York City and my partner Karina lives in New York City. Okay. So are you up in Connecticut or? Just north. We're in Orange County, New York. Okay. Yeah, not Orange County, Florida, not Orange County, Florida, as no, everybody okay. asks me, but Orange County, New York. Yeah. Okay. And then, and so essentially what brought you two together to start this project? I don't mean, why did you start it? Because you're sort of explaining that, but What is your business history with her and how far does that go back? So we've been together um, as colleagues um, for about 10 years. I was uh, working on site um, as a director of uh, wellness strategy for Goldman under the Optum umbrella. We got to know each other as colleagues um, and we started doing work together Mm. and um, really trusted colleagues. She has worked internationally, originally from Argentina. She's worked all over the world. Um, both of us are very passionate about health and well-being, corporate health and well-being, um, making sure that people age well within the workforce. Um, but the other part is that personally, both of us have done caregiving for parents and yeah, we're sending so bring, boards for each other. Yeah. So you bring some of this experience to the table. When you were at Goldman Sachs, you were, I think, I remember a conversation with you. You had a team there, other people you were working with. How many people were working for you? Yeah. So at the time there were um, about six, seven direct reports and then the entire team, because I had oversight of, of all the onsite vendors, managers, mm-hmm. you know, probably like two, 300 people ish. Um, I had really the privilege of, of working directly with the benefits team, the HR team and the chief medical officer. Yeah. And um, you see the impact of caregiving on people's professional lives and their personal yeah. lives, but also through NFP big um, brokerage firm, which I worked for, I don't know, maybe 70 different companies we work directly with to help them different industries. Yeah. Caregivers are in every, every workplace. So let's talk about Goldman's for a minute and other business experiences. What are, what was the, you know, the, the plus side of, of Goldman's? What was the, the bad downside? Um, you know, did they have an awareness of, of the priorities that you have made so important in your own life? Mem, in terms of caregiving and just how you see life, or was this like you know you were basically like a, a prehistoric creature that wanders out into another planet <laughs> and tries to talk humanity into people who are all about corporate profits? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. It has to be said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going. 
if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, so it's it's a good question. And I really want to applaud. So I want to be clear, Goldman has invested a lot of money into their program and they've done things on site. Um, I didn't start the program. I want to be clear. I came sure. in, um, you know, and, and, you know, my time there, you know, really, really valued that time. And, um, and I applaud them because they started out early on thinking about um, resilience, you know, how do we how do we use the language in in our working culture yeah. that's going to actually resonate? And so they did some really smart things. Um, they had uh, at several of the larger offices, they had on-site EAP mental health and well-being. So key, so key. We had um, something that I think is just very basic, um, on-site ergonomics. And you, you think about just sitting and how you sit and how you move and all of these things. So um, they built this program over like you know, 11 years and, mm. um, and I applaud them and not just them. I mean, there are other companies out there sure. that are also doing it. You know, I think with, with not with many, many companies, this, this not many industries, because again, I've worked with many different companies. Yeah. This idea of um, valuing busyness is something that, especially after coming through the pandemic, that I think you're starting to see a shift Yes. some of these forward-looking leaders. Which well, I, I was gonna—I was just gonna mention, and that you know, I don't want to zero in on poor old Goldman Sachs. I have a friend who works there, does personal yeah, wealth management. Great people there. <laughs> yeah, help me launch my new book, and we're we're great friends. But it just happened to stand out that um, I think it was the chairman. Uh, you know, when everybody was working at home, people were saying they wanted to stay home, and he was saying, "I expect everybody back in the office." And he was one of the people who was sort of cited by the media as not maybe keeping up as quickly with things. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal kind of called them out, which I found surprising because that would seem like the Goldman handbook there. Or, um, But they were saying, well, you know, this is typical of, a, of sort of the old style thinking about how you work with people. Because as you know, lots of folks after, after they sheltered in COVID kind of discovered caregiving for their children for their partners, for their spouses in a way they hadn't. And, you know, the New York Times did a survey, which I uh, talk about in my, my new book, where I think it was 45% of the males who had never been at home as caregivers, uh, either the kids had been in daycare, which was canceled because of COVID. So now they have their children with them. They're kind of discovering parenthood for the first time and or their wife had stayed home with a little child. These guys didn't want to go back to work. And right. they were saying, okay, you know, I'm going to work from home now. By the way, my son's one of them. I've been doing childcare for John and Becky now for 13 years, for Lucy, who's 13 now, uh, Jack, who's 11, and Nora, who's seven, who I'll be picking up right after we do this podcast together um, and cooking for her and playing with her and reading her. We're halfway through the Chronicles of Narnia right now. Everything's great. Oh, wonderful but, book. Wonderful but book. John, John still works at home now, but he didn't want to go into the office anymore. And guess what? He cut a new deal as a as a manager of a, of a science team down in a startup, and they're letting him work from home now. And this is permanent. He goes in down one day a week. So uh, that's a long preamble to say that it seems to me that philosophically speaking, what you're doing and your emphasis on caregiving and knowing a little about you know, what you value, you know, in some instances, you're swimming up against the tide because corporate America is not 
blazing the trail on, on caregiving. You know, they have not led the way, for instance, globally on um, parental leave, paid parental leave, uh, as not they could the have. Not in the US in the way that it is in other industrialized nations. That's what I'm saying. About that. I do think, again, you're seeing more and more companies um, waking up to the fact that um, the benefits that employees value yeah. tie back to um, their sense of what's important in their life. And you're 100% right, the pandemic. It's interesting that you brought up men, right? Men getting to spend more time. Women, working women have known this for decades. Yes. <laughs> We've been well, up That's why this. I brought up men. Yeah. Because, you know, and I am so glad because honestly, I think it's going to help push the envelope when it was just women's voices talking about this right. and, and really amazing women. I don't want to and great men. There have been. I don't want to discredit, you know, some of the leaders, you know, that have been forward thinking around this. Um, but you're right. There has been some real. And I think, you know, this going back and forth, this uncertainty. Can we go in? Can we not? Now we've got another variant. Oh, my God. What do we do? The eye-opening piece of this, look, for anybody, change is difficult, whether you are a CEO or right. you're working at, you know, you're, you're a, you know, a manager and a manufacturer, whatever it is, the truth is change is difficult. This has worked for me. This has worked for me for decades. Yes. So you can acknowledge that, right? We're asking you to completely change your way of thinking as a yeah. leader. Yeah. On the other hand, the, this younger generation, it has been wonderful. It's so exciting. My nephews or twin boys are almost 27. Like listening to them talk about what do I value? What do I want? I mm. want to have a career. I want to be in a place where I can grow and contribute. But family is equally important. Yes. I want to be here for these important events. And, and, you know, again, I want to be able to spend time with my grandparents. I want to be able to hear their stories. I don't mm -hmm. want to be eking out time. And I think that, that um, technology has unfortunately made it harder and harder for white collar workers. There's actually data around this that says that white collar workers are more stressed now than blue collar workers because they have actual hours. Yes. And now of you course, everybody home. brings everything home with them and they were already answering emails at midnight and coming in, you know, working over the weekend. Um, okay, so let's turn the page here a minute. First of all, let me remind people you're watching, listening to, participating in In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. I am Frank Schaefer. This is my podcast produced by Ernie Gregg, my buddy and companion and friend who makes everything happen. He's in Arizona. I'm in Massachusetts. So we, we know each other long distance. Funny thing, we worked together for five years before we met in, in the flesh. It was wow. crazy. He came to a book opening of mine in New York. See? And Virtual relationships. Yes. And it was odd because it was the first time I, I met Ernie and I met his husband, Rock, who's a pastor in Arizona. And um, I kind of did a double take because it didn't really, I mean, I knew kind of it was the first time we met, but the relationship actually works online so well sometimes. Same with you. We had a long conversation a couple months ago and I'm trying to differentiate in my head between interviewing you and just talking to you. So, um, and remembering to ask you questions like, oh no, this is official because I feel like we sort of know each other. Um, okay, so this is in conversation with Frank Schaefer. I'm an author. My new book is Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Yes, I've read it. <laughs> yes, everyone in Israel has a copy, right? I'm only joking. <laughs> well, we would encourage not just Israel, but everyone. No, yeah, but and I mean, I'll and, start and Frank with the not asking me to hold up the book. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Yeah. But, I, but if I can jump in for just a second, Frank, I mean, it was interesting when I heard you talk. There were things that you said on the pot, on the interview um, through our friend um, Jose Celestra. 
Yes. That so resonated, which really connected us. And so I did go out and get the book right away. And it it resonated so deeply with me about what you talk about, you know, mm -hmm. using the word love. Like we don't use the word love enough. And you are such a, a passionate speaker around that particular piece. And that this mm -hmm. is this love is not a word of weakness by any stretch of the imagination. Right. It is so powerful. Well, but, and as uh, I talk about in the book. Uh, it's a sciencey thing too. You know, when I started this book, I had no idea of the depth of the science. Speaking of women, um, my my good friend Myrna Perez, who is teaches at university level, wonderful woman, started annotating and correcting my manuscript, telling me you got to read this book, this book, and this book. And my journey was, you know, why do I love these grandchildren so passionately? Why is this such a great moment for me? Which is what the book is about. Um, but actually, the science is, is very clear on it. It's because we evolved to be caregivers. And when you cut that part of your life out, you will not find joy. There are a lot of lonely, unhappy people around because our culture does not put the caregiving relationship aspect of life first, not just for married people with kids and grandkids like me, but everybody. So anyway, to, to get back into the interview here, um, and by the way, if you're listening to the podcast and you like this, then please like it in the techie sense too, um, uh, so other people can find it and share it. So um, I'm talking with Mim Semft, and she is managing director of Motivity Care, uh, a best-in-class caregiving management company. We've been talking about that. Let me go way, way back because we started with a, a death in your family. Um, as you know, because you've read my work, um, yes. I kind of put it all on the page you know, got Jeannie pregnant at 17 and 18. My father was a fundamentalist pastor. I fled the religious right. Uh, I share the personal drawbacks of that, the things I've repented of, my sorrow of being part of the religious right in the 1970s, the harm we did. I'm sort of upfront about that. So I'm inviting you to kind of just give us a thumbnail of your life. What were your parents like? What did they believe then? What do you believe I'm not saying just religiously anything, uh, you know, who, who are you on the way to becoming and, and where were you before the things that you changed in your life? Give me a picture of yourself because you, I think you're such an interesting person and I, I love what you're doing, but I, I want, want people who listen to this to really get to know you now um, a little more deeply than just the job description. Oh, that's, that's really kind. That's a big question. So um, as a child, I, I, think that a lot of who I am was really formed by the fact that we moved a lot, um, mm -hmm. not, you know, from one place to another, but the communities that I were exposed, that I was exposed to incredibly diverse. So people from backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, I had friends that were black and Asian and Catholic and Jewish. And um, the summers, my father did research up at the marine biology laboratories in Woods Hole. And so there'd be families from different countries. And you know, here you are at six, seven, eight years old and you get thrown into this and we all play together. And, you know, but it, I really didn't understand honestly what, um, what prejudice was until I was about 10 or 11. And we, we moved to Western Pennsylvania. My parents had always been opening. You want to go try this little girl, one of my best friends, black Baptist family. I stayed over. They would invite me to go to the church. I'm the only little white girl. And I'd come home and go, mom, this was so much fun. Oh mm -hmm. my gosh. And whether it was Friday night Shabbat dinner or it was our next door neighbors that were um, first generation Hungarians, my mother and father actually stood up for them when they became citizens. Like we just, it was a very open, curious um, household. Mm. And I'm deeply grateful for that. And that you judge people um, by who they, what they do. 
Mm. Not because of their background, not because of, you know, anything, but are they a kind person? Are they somebody who is there to help? And, um, and I will tell you that both my parents, we were very big on being involved in our communities, you know, volunteering and holidays, doing things. And um, we helped uh, sponsor a Vietnamese family when I was young. So very, very influenced about how we're connected to community mm. and, and what it means to be um, a member of society. And, and were they kind of first, second generation? Where were they from originally, originally? Um, both of them grew up in Pennsylvania. Okay, and so, were born in the States? Uh, yep, born in and the States. And then how about yeah, grandparents? Who, who got back. to America when? Uh, we go back pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> so if I can't tell you 100%, but I will tell you that one like one strain, so they claim that we go back like before the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. There's another group that came like, probably in the mid 1800s and yeah. you know so and but but honestly we're we're a real like just genetic mix we're just a big you know we really are like not we're, we're, we're both sides family. of your family uh jewish no no that that is yeah so that's a whole nother you're talking about thing. shabbat and all that so i'm just trying to make right. a, trying to figure out so who's yeah so no i was not raised in a jewish household i am i chose to be jewish hmm which I know most people would not do. Um, but was a parent, was a parent Jewish? On my father's side going back. Okay, yeah. Generations. But um, so why would somebody make this big choice? I mean, you're somebody that's also like completely changed. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, sure. No, I totally get choosing different things. Yeah. But going through as an adult, I went through a period where um, I was in a marriage with a very good man, really good human being, but not the right relationship. Mm -hmm you know, for either one of us, I had gotten very ill, gone through um, a number of pretty big experiences, mm. and um, almost lost my life to an illness. And you really at, at 2930, you really start to think like, what is yeah. important Start to reevaluate what all of all of this is. Um, and I, you know, I exposed myself to so many different faith practices. Mm. And I wanted more of a spiritual life. And so I went on a search, I really did. And um, I ended up um, really having the great good fortune of being introduced to Rabbi Buckwald. I will give him all the credit in the world at um, National Jewish Outreach Program. Um, went to synagogue, got to know him, got to know the rabbis. Um, and there are two things that, well, there's, I shouldn't say just two, but there are two things that deeply resonate with me about Judaism. One is this concept of tikkun olam. How do we repair the world? Hmm. And the idea is that you are born into this world with a mandate. You are not expected to repair everything, but you need to figure out what it is you are supposed to do. What is mm -hmm. the piece of the puzzle that you are supposed to fix? Yeah. And um, Judaism is a questioning faith um, at its core. So if you go back and, you know, it's not just the Torah, just like in many religions, as you dig into it, there is yeah. the, you know, there's the Talmud there's, and it's really, what I find cool is that there's this whole like rabbinical conversation that goes on for hundreds of years hmm. that talks about ethical issues. And in it, so it is not about like blind faith. It's about does this make sense? Is this a just, how do we have a just society? Yeah. How do we build society and care for each other as a community? And this, and really a big emphasis on community and family. Hmm. And um, I love, you know, whether you are Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever it is, this idea of having time set aside where everything else is put aside and you were there for friends and family. And that it is about celebrating in the moment. So on Friday nights, when you light candles, you light one candle 
um, to remember right now, and one is to remember the past. And I think that's really profound. And it also gives this separation. Not everybody loves rituals. I personally find it very meaningful. Mm. Um, and people who know me were like, you did an Orthodox conversion, which means I was Shomer Shabbat. I did, I did all of it. You know, I really were, did. Were you in the States or in Israel when you did that? In States, in the States. Okay. And I studied for two and a half years with rabbis, with Orthodox rabbis, with uh, modern Orthodox, but amazing, amazing teachers. And not just yeah. them. I mean, just a, a, an incredible community that, um, you know, and. Well, they must have been surprised because, you know, I mean, if you look at the shtick of 90% of Jewish comedians, it's always how nobody wants to be Jewish and how we don't promise an afterlife. So who would want to join us? You know, the, at least Christians have, go, know how they get to heaven. I mean, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, thing there. So I'm sure they don't see a young, intelligent woman, what, in your 30s at this point? I was in my 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Walk in off the street and say, hey, you know what? I want to I mean, this is like a scene out of an early Woody Allen film when he becomes a Lutheran and he has the white bread and the mayonnaise and a crucifix. And he yeah. shows up and the guy says, you want to convert? Why would you want to do that? You know, says the Catholic priest. So what was the reaction? Um, interesting question. So, again, I had gotten to know people um, actually through my, my workplace at the time, and they invited yeah. me to come. And they said, come to this service. Why? Because um, it's a beginner service. So literally, you're allowed to stop and ask questions. Well, who else is I'm in the learner. beginner service? Anybody wants to come. Yeah, yeah, but I'm saying, I'm asking you, actually asking you, who else was yeah. there? Like other people who wanted to become Jewish or Jews no, who wanted to learn them, more Most of them are Jewish. Most of yeah, them grew up just doing things wrote like we mostly do, right? Most religions, like you grow up, this is just what we do. But right. we don't question it. We don't understand, well, where does this come from? Why do we do it this way? Yeah. Well, why do you see it this way? Why do you? And so it's a really unique model. The majority are Jewish people that want to get reconnected sure. with their faith. That want so, to so, so like, are you in the position in that class of being the only person like you there i wasn't the only one <laughs> well, who was the other who was the other one and how where who was the other one um well, some were very interesting just very interesting people um different backgrounds uh yeah. one was like an art um historian one um and i'm just trying this is, this is a long time ago now for me so right. <laughs> trying to remember like you know well you're not old enough to have had had one of them be sammy davis jr but I, he did no. the same thing no that was definitely no he was definitely not part of my group <laughs> but um but but it appeals to, to to the learner in me yeah and the ability um you know to be a part of this so i, I mean what's interesting so like a sermon, it's a, called a Devar Torah, right? And it's it's it doesn't have to be a minister. So he just randomly asked me to do this. Why? Because I got introduced to the group right. through the president of the synagogue. So he just made the assumption that, oh, well, you should do this Devar Torah. So I had grown up again, reading all kinds of stories. Like I already know all these stories. Like mm -hmm. I'd grown up with it. So it wasn't like I, you know, went in. So I did a Devar Torah specifically on um, the Noah story. And this idea of, you know, why we need an ark and mm -hmm. what, what this really means in a modern day world. And so I gave it. And then he, um, he asked me if I would give it to the congregation that night. Yeah, great. So <laughs> basically did. what's happening is, is there are Jews in this group. And I know this without asking. And you tell me if I'm right, who say to you, why do you know so much more about our faith than we do? Well, because coming as a convert, you're studying and you're looking at stuff. And that has to have happened. Yes. Yeah. And the enthusiasm and I, of convert, you know, you're actually reading all the stuff and they were just born into it. 
Right. Well, it does make a difference, like in anything. Well, of course. You know, yeah, when you have that kind of faith practice. But, you know, yeah. when people, and I don't, most people may not know what a mikvah is, but um, a mikvah is a ritual bath. And um, for Orthodox Jews, uh, many many folks do this, like women. It sounds uh, like that other word that means good deed. That's another one, mitzvah. Mitzvah. Yeah, it yeah, does, doesn't it? So anybody who understands baptism, I yeah. can tell you that it came from the ritual of the mikvah, yeah. 100%. There's no we, doubt in my mind. Yeah, okay. So let me fast forward a minute. Now, did you marry somebody who was Jewish in a second marriage because you're married? Yes. And did that sort of... Um, would have that happened if you had not converted? I, I don't mean in, in this physical sense of where did you meet? Because maybe you met in an yeah. environment you would have been in, but philosophically, oh, spiritually, question. and so forth. Yeah, it's an interesting question because everybody asks me, well, because my husband is Israeli, has no accent, though he lives in, you know, he lived in the United yeah, States. Yeah, sure. No, they said, didn't you convert for him? I said, no, I did not. No, right. I didn't. I met him after. Yeah. Uh, you know, which, which is kind of interesting. And the way we met and how we got together is a whole nother story. Like it's really kind of out there as like, you know, um, what usually happens to most folks. But yeah, uh, yeah. but by my father-in-law, you know, when I, um, you know, first met him, it was very interesting because of course he was asking me all kinds of questions and he was like, hmm, she really knows her stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, let me, let me interject something here. About 30 years ago, after I left the evangelical fold, you know, I grew up used to going to church for a number of years. Jeannie and I really didn't do anything. She grew up kind of nominal Roman Catholic in the Bay Area, liberal Democrat family, uh, very straightforward, lovely people. Uh, I grew up in this evangelical hothouse, uh, kind of almost a cultic environment where my dad was the guru. Um, Years later, when I wanted to start going to church again, I kind of shopped around a little bit, Um, you know, Episcopalian, High Church of England, when I was in boarding school in England, I, I sort of liked that liturgical. Anyway, in the end, we wound up in the Greek Orthodox Church. Well, because I had come out of a well-known Protestant background, I was kind of, a, you know, for a little while there, I was on that speaking circuit because they were ex- asking me to explain why would you convert? Because Greek Orthodox are very similar in, in, to the Jewish community in, in several ways, actually, liturgically very similar. When you look at the Greek Orthodox liturgy, there's a lot that uh, people would recognize there, but also because they're kind of a non-proselytizing group. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you, you have evangelicals are all proselytizing. Uh, You know, if you're Greek Orthodox, you're Greek Orthodox because you were born Greek Orthodox or you're a weirdo like me who walks in and converts. I'm not saying in present company you are, but you know, like that. (laughs) I'm kind of a unicorn. But, but, what, okay. but, but, they, but they're not used to this. So everybody always was asking me, well, is your wife Greek? Like, mm. what would you be doing here? You know, half the service is in Greek. You don't. And I said, well, I like it much better because I don't understand it because I'm, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff. So it's, I like the mystery because it covers the, the gaps. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here while being a little bit facetious is that over the course of that 30 years, my enthusiasm of, of a convert has worn off in two ways. First of all, I have steadily moved away from being a supernaturalist in the sense of actually believing. I describe myself as an atheist who believes in God. In other Mm -hmm. words, paradoxically, I accept the fact there are things I am not going to get any answers for, deal with it. And so I get up in the morning and it just so happens a number of steps from my bedroom down to the the middle floor are, are the number of people in my family. So I always, you know, I pray on each one. And when I told Lucy that I, she said, well, do you pray for yourself? And I said, no, I don't pray for myself. And she says, well, add yourself to my step. So ever, ever since it's been, 
that great advice from a young okay so then how does a guy who says he's an atheist and on one side do this because um uh because i do and 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 you know that's how my mom raised me if you want to put it that way not the staircase business but prayer is something that uh, i want to do and my wife and i say grace over our meals because uh we're we're very thankful for things and and we want to say thank you to something or someone but philosophically and intellectually speaking i'm a long 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 way from anybody who believes in the basic tenets of the Christian faith, if you go for the theology I was raised in. Yeah. Big, long preamble to a question for you. Are you now, how many years later since you converted? Uh, it's been 20 years. Okay, 20 years in. Where's your head at? Um, I, to put it like a guy on a bus would put it to you, do you believe any of this stuff is true? Or so are you culturally believe- Jewish or fam- familial? Tell me where you're at, because I, I don't believe any of this stuff is true. I don't think any of any of this happened as written on this on the miraculous side. Although, of course, having been in Israel myself and so forth and so on, I know that there's some history there. But Just a little. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of history. Every, you know, the human race. Right. Is no, no, no. Young. Everywhere. So no, but you not only that, the human race is right? so young. We don't even have a history. We've been here for an eye blink. We're not even part of this planet yet. And we've already. And my family, my, you know, we have a lot of family that lives here. Right. So yeah. first off, I'm first and foremost, I want to say I am a huge at just the country of Israel. Take away all the other stuff. Yeah, it's sure. a beautiful place. It, it really is. is. It's it there. Uh, the food here is amazing. Yes. The you know, the people that like if you get to visit it, take away all the stuff. But to get to your you know, I one of the wisest things I ever heard, and I think it's it's where I come from, is sacred myth. What do we learn from these stories? Do I actually believe that, you know, certain things happened in the way that they happened in the way these stories go? No, my father was a research scientist. So there is a part of me that has that that side to me. But sacred myth speaks very deeply to me Hmm. that these stories have been passed down from generation to generation because there is wisdom in them. And when we take them back and think about, well, how does this apply actually to, what is the story actually saying, right? Hmm. Not that the actual like nuts and bolts of, you know, the, the, the waters part and they went up and, you know, it's like in the 10 commandments, you know, no, do I believe it? No, I don't. Um, do I believe it's possible that people left and that they went through this experience and it turned into, you know, when it gets, you know, exaggerated. Sure. Yeah. Think about like, th- this is true in non-religious stories too. Yes. You think about George Washington and the cherry tree as yes. an example, you know, those kinds of things. It's not the point that I believe whether or not it is actual fact. Yeah. It's why does this story get repeated over and over again? And what is it that resonates so deeply with so I can explain people? that to you in a minute, but just keep going here. Yeah. So I will tell you that I consider myself a spiritual person. Mm. Um, I absolutely identify as Jewish. Those are the practices and traditions that bring me closest to um, that which is unknown, I think. Mm. Um, It is the closest in theology and, and, and again, like anything, just like Christianity, Judaism has different flavors. Right. So there's not just one version, you know, and so there's a lot of infighting, just like there is in Christianity. I mean, there's all of that stuff in every religion. And I think at the end of the day, for me, it was about what connects me to something that is bigger than myself. Mm. I feel exactly the same way. You you get you basically change a few words here and there. You and I are on the same page. Yeah. Do I do I believe it? So I don't use the word God. I don't. 
mm-hmm. in general. I mean, I use it in like language or in prayers or whatever it is. Yeah. But I think it is much bigger than that. I mean, one of the things that that I find interesting is is in the Torah that the names there are many, 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 many names for God, and there are equal distribution of female and male names. Hmm. Interesting. Didn't hmm. get interpreted that way. Right. Um, also, I think, and I and I'm sorry, I can't remember the word off the top of my head, but one big thing, and this was the other thing when when this rabbi started talking about it, that the word in the Torah that often gets interpreted as fear of God hmm. is actually awe. Yes. Yeah. And that, that hit a real deep note for me. Hmm. When you're in awe of someone, there is such deep respect. You can hate somebody and fear them and still be forced into doing something. Hmm. Awe has a whole different connotation. And so from yeah. a spiritual perspective, that's part of my core belief around it too. And it's, it's that thing when you see something that is so incredibly beautiful in nature that you don't even yeah. have, and you're a writer, but there are times when you almost don't have the words to mm. describe how moving something is or how beautiful something is, and that you are in the presence of this in this moment in time. Mm. That to me is the spiritual experience. And it could be holding a newborn baby, or it could be even being in that room when somebody passes or the incredible sunset that you're standing there with people, the simple and the big. And it's, Mm. and I think the best of what faith practices is are bringing you to that, that point. You're right. We're here for a limited time. Yes. We get to see this. We get to experience this. It's, Mm. it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, and, and, and we forget about that in our busy, 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 crazy Mm. lives. I remember walking in the streets in New York city one time, and this beautiful dragonfly, like this was like I'm 40, like tons of people running around and this dragonfly just coming in. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is that dragonfly doing here? Isn't that miraculous? Yeah. You know, I think that the best of spiritual practices help you embrace those moments. Mm. And for me, that's what my faith practice does. Yeah, well, that's great. And I'm glad that I gave you a long preamble because I got a good good full answer back from you in return. So thank you so much for that. Um, and I love I love what you were saying. Let me turn the page here a little bit. Uh, again, this is uh, Frank Schaefer in conversation with Frank Schaefer. And I am speaking, um, I'm talking to Mim, who is a friend of mine. I mean, you know, we've kind of connected through my book and I'd like to revisit the theme of taking the pain out of caregiving in a moment. But before we do that, um, you have read this new book of mine and we've sort of connected on it. How do you see what I talk about here, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, which is the title of my book, connecting with not just you personally, but the caregiving management company that you've got, uh, Motivity Care, because I think your vibe and mine are very related. I think what you do for a living in starting this company in your past history and what I'm calling for in my book which is essentially to see life through the prism, the lens of human relationships first and career second. In other words, redefine what we mean by success. So for me, you are a successful person based on your relationship with the people you are caring, giving for, but also closest to, not whether your company earns more money next year. That would be nice. We all need a job, but that's not what makes you successful. But normally in this world these days, we define people by their job titles. So talk to me about the relationship between what you do and who you are and your reaction to my book, which was very warm. And we've had a number of conversations. Why? Why? How do we fit together? 
you talk a lot about um, the disconnect between mm. people that has happened. And, and I think very profoundly over the past 20, 30, 40 years, how lonely people are, how many people have no one to talk to. In fact, there are studies out there where they've followed people over decades and in the early eighties. And I think this is really, really important for people to understand that the question was, if you had an emergency at two o'clock in the morning, how many people would actually pick up the phone? And most people, when the study was started, we took, we give you three or four, right? Which is really wonderful. By the nineties, um, one out of four people that were doing the survey said they had no one. No one. What kind of a world are we in? Yes. Where people are so isolated that if, if God forbid, they have a, a medical emergency mm. or something really dramatic, they lose their job and they're, you know, through no fault of their own. And like, who, who do they call? Who do they talk to? Mm. And at the most fundamental, you know, piece of it, yes, we're practical about getting things organized and about doing this. But because we have this like chief of staff, concierge manager piece of what we are doing, right. it's about listening to people, mm. understanding who they are and honoring who they are at every stage of their adult life. And, you know, in a world that's only driven by, to your point, and what you talk a lot about in the book, well, you're only, you know, as good as this job or this project or whatever right. it is. But we're, after the past two years, what do you value? Mm. What is important to you as a human being? And, um, and how do we care for those in our, you know, in our lives, in our society, and be present for them? I am, again, deeply grateful that I had the flexibility to come over and do what I've done in the past two and a half months. Mm. I am deeply grateful to my partner, Karina Mueller, because we've managed to continue yes. to work on and her support. I also want to give a shout out to, because we haven't mentioned this, but I'm also a co-founder of Global Women for Wellbeing and that whole network, which has been an incredible. And incredible what's Global network. Women for Wellbeing about and what have you got to do with it? I mean, so other I'm also than you're a co-founder of this nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and really, this is the other like tie-in really to your book, isn't it? So, you know, we are um, about empowering more healthy female leadership at all levels. And how many people are involved in that? I mean, who, who, um, we have a core team. We have a core team of, you know, three of us, we have a board of directors, we have an advisory board. Um, we've been around for about five years now. And through that, again, this message of how caregiving is impacting, but it does impact men. And we appreciate that very much. I don't want to negate all the good men out there sure. that are, you know, that are working hard and doing this, but on average, Yes. The primary decision maker is going to be a woman. And when you work, if you were a single mom and have two kids and now mom gets Alzheimer's yes, um, and you, she's two states away, it becomes overwhelming. So mm -hmm. just, you know, I'm a data girl, but AARP tells us that on average, when you take on this primary caregiver um, decision-making, this is not the aid, this is yes. all the doctor's appointments, is the sure. house clean, how do we, is the prescriptions changing, do we have to change the house, like this myriad of things that you have to deal with, it becomes overwhelming. Yeah. And um, your job suffers, your family relationships suffer. It is a gift that I, I truly believe, like to have somebody on that back end, mm -hmm. we got your back. We yeah. will help you get this organized and sorted yeah. out. We're going to get you ready for what's happening right now, but we're also going to help you be proactive because that takes the pain out of so much of this. 
Um, we are very, very lucky to have advisors um, to our company, including Dr. Dale Atkins. Some of you may know her. Sure. She's been on the Today Show, her. and and yeah. and a, you know, and she is a, a friend, a dear friend, and colleague. I've known her for oh my gosh, I, I don't even want to say how many years. <laughs> yeah. Speaking but, of uh, which, by the way, we need yeah. to do a shout out to Jose Zilstra, who introduced us. Yes. Who runs Gender Fair, which you know you can download there app and and i just want to say we applaud her work gender Gender fair gender fair you can download the app and and find out whether the airline you're about to fly treats women well and change airlines if they don't i mean it gives you a survey of companies and then the other thing she's part of is the wbc the women's business collaborative so am i also yeah that you are too and then and then that's sort of an organization that then reaches out to hundreds of other organizations and uh, it seems there are a lot of women thinking along these lines. Has something changed um, in the the kind of feminist um, juggernaut? I, as you know, I've got a whole chapter in Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet on why I'm a feminist and how I think feminism actually does more for men than for women in the sense that, it, it for instance, in countries where there's more gender parity, men live almost as long as women do. I mean, stuff yeah. you can measure. Uh, nervous yes. breakdown, suicide, all these other things. Okay, so you know where I'm coming from on that. Um, WBC, you know, and people like Jose and you would not like this book if that wasn't me. Preface the question I'm going to ask. Don't you feel that um, there was a thread coming through the feminist movement that at one point could have, have, have done a better job of saying, look, we demand from corporate America that they see us as whole people and don't make us choose between family and career. And I think one of the places you really see this, that by the way, Michelle Obama has spoken about is the issue of fertility. I mean, it is simply ridiculous that we are in an era in which it is normal, quote unquote, to have a trillion dollar fertility industry that deals with the fact that corporate America has never told people if you want a child, we're gonna work with you so you can have that child at your convenience. Instead, they've said, if you want us to take you seriously and you ever want to make senior partner in this company, you know, you show up as if you have no other interest in this life. We don't even want to know that you've got a family, let alone take time off or whatever. I, I hope that now we're coming to a place where people like you and Jose and others that I'm working with and talking to because they're interested in my book are demanding a better kind of deal. Yeah. And I just want your reaction to that. Yeah, demanding things is difficult when you don't. Well, demand um, may be the wrong primary word. decision maker, and I think that yeah. this is again, it goes back to um, look. You, history is history, right? Who runs yeah. most companies? So yeah, 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 we care about this. Um, I, a good friend of mine um, who was a global HR director for Procter and Gamble, a couple other companies. We actually had him um, come and speak in an event because he made a very interesting point, specifically about this. Right. Until the senior leader, the CEO, whatever, says this is important to me. It's not, oh, it's important to you to go do this. It's important to you. No, it needs to be important to them personally so that they understand. And it becomes not just, hey, it's, you know, it's National Women's Day or it's it's history month. And then 12, you know, another 11 months go by and nothing's really changed. Here's something that I know, you know, we are getting louder and I think we need to. I think mm-hmm. that um, the understanding, and here's what kills me, because the data has been out there again. You look at Harvard Business Review and Gallup and everybody else has been doing these studies. When you truly have gender diverse, and I want to be careful, not just gender, but women from all backgrounds, not just sure, white sure. women, 
but black women, Hispanic women, indigenous, like there is real data that shows that you will actually be more financially successful, that you will be better at innovation, that you will actually have more resilience within your teams if they are truly integrated. Because the problem still is, I think in many cases, hey, look, we've got these women. Look, see, here they are. Yeah. The question is, do they have as much voice and as much decision-making power? And that takes time. So um, there are companies that, uh, you know, and I do want to give a shout out to companies like Diageo and you, Jose and Gender Fair actually did an analysis of them. So Diageo is one, L'Oreal. There are companies that have made really good progress. There are smaller companies like Meteor because everybody says only the big companies. Well, the CEO of General Motors is a woman. Yes. Right. Well, and here's the question about that though, Frank, right? Okay. (laughs) That's great. Now let's look at this down through all the different levels. Did making her the CEO actually create a bigger pipeline of women from all backgrounds to move yeah. into more leadership positions? And that'll and be the question. That's the, that's that's the, the question, right? And then my question on top of that would be coming out of my book. And when you made that pipeline available and you opened it up and put people at all levels, did you tell them part of our package is we are going to give you a full year of maternity leave? Okay. Not the we United going, States. We are going to open a nursery school where you work so you can walk down the hall and have lunch with your toddler. We're going to invite your husband to take a full year off and we'll help you do that too. Because guess what? We have your back as someone who does more than just go to work. See, that's the other shoe that needs to drop. And then, well, and by the way, true. and this, the companies that are smart enough to do that would find that they're not having any great resignation. People would stick around. Because you are now being taken, countries. You're being taken care of as a human countries. being, as a human being. And, and I okay. think it's ludicrous that this it. always focuses on women's needs as if men, you know, I love, I, I enjoy taking care of my grandchildren more than I do anything I do for work. Hmm. Okay, so and I can't be the only man that feels that way. But you're not even supposed to say that in this culture uh, as a male. No, you're not. Well, I and do. You get dinged for it, by the way. And, and again, anybody who's going to push back on that, go look at the data. It's well, really out there. Look at what happened to Pete Buttigieg. To look at this. Pete Buttigieg trying to take a little time with his adopted children, and he's right. being mocked on Fox Television, which the rest of the time dings the left for not having enough family values. I mean, go figure. How can you how can you claim to have family values when there is no support, as you clearly point out in your book over and over again? Yeah. We are whole people when we can care for and be cared by the people that are most important in our lives. Yes. That should not be pushed aside um, for the sake of, you know, a corporate bottom line. I get that a company has to make money in order for us to have jobs. I've worked in finance. I get it. I'm not arguing that at all. But what I agree and what, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, you know, prior to this is that companies that understand there is a whole person walking through that door and um, being a little bit more flexible, learning, hey, gosh, if that person doesn't have to do an hour commute each way, you know, they're actually more focused and more productive. Isn't that interesting? Gee. And Zylo, um, their their, their CEO uh, was interviewed, and I think this is only about nine months into the pandemic. And it was a great interview because he said, I've completely changed my mind. He said, our productivity hasn't gone down. He said, why was I so focused on this? And I love that he was willing to publicly get out and speak about it because it gets to exactly what you're talking about. Whether you are a mom, a dad, a blended family, you know, single parent, whatever it is, particularly a single parent that's caring for children and older adults, 
you need that paycheck. You need that paycheck. And um, if you feel like your job is being jeopardized, that this means I can't put food on the table, I can't pay the bills, but you're pulling me apart. I mean, this really came to a head over the pandemic. Women, you know, in droves saying, I can't do this anymore. You're asking me to be a teacher and be online all the time and take care of the household stuff. And like, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And there, there are men that like stepped up and did stuff, but in general, women still do more work at home and have these. So we actually have a whole nother job Mm -hmm. and you start adding on again, like I said, 23 plus extra hours now that you've got to come up with, if you're taking care of an, an older member of the family, or what if your spouse becomes disabled or what if somebody, um, has surgery and they need support for a couple of months. How flexible is your is your job? And I think the other thing too that we don't talk enough about is the grief process. And you know, we know, we know from studies that when you lose a spouse, a child, a parent, in general, that first month or two, it's um, it's the same as having deep depression. And that's normal. That is normal. That is not mm. being weak. That's not. We give three days in many cases. What do you do when you lose somebody that you yeah. love that deeply and that you have no way of dealing with it? Yeah, well, um, I, I think the discussion is open um, nationally in the US and, and more and more globally, just saying, look, whatever this is we're doing is not working on a human level. Because right. loneliness numbers, suicide numbers, depression numbers, drug overdose numbers, touch it where you will, uh, we're being hollowed out uh, yeah. by a culture that is not looking at the whole person, whether it's how to grieve, time with your newborn baby, encouraging women to have their children if they want them. Nobody says women should have children. If they want a child somewhere within the range of something any biologist would say is a reasonable fertility clock. I mean, just come on. This is Thank you. And, and, and yeah, I mean, from healthy, this gets to healthy female leadership. And we do talk about this a lot, right? So women yeah. push off having children. Um, the risks you take if you get pregnant over the age of 35, particularly for black women, yeah. they die four times the rate of their white counterparts for a whole host of reasons, not just because of age. Um, Women are sold a bill of goods. Hey, if you get, you know, you go through and get your eggs harvested, there are women that end up having symptoms for years. We haven't done enough studies about what happens when you force your body to do that. Um, There is not a whole lot of uh, data out there around, okay, if you freeze these eggs for 10 years, are they truly viable? Mm. So what are we paying for? Who's making money on this? And why are we not allowing, to your point, um, families to decide when they want to have healthy children and be able to have a career? Why is that? We can yeah, send, why is people, this we send people to the moon. Like, yeah, and come work on. with them on it. Well, and the people who yeah. break the rules, like I talk about my daughter in my book, Jessica, who wound up as a CEO of a company in New York. You know, she left college, got married early, had her kids early, finished college, did everything backwards, then got a job as an intern, wound up. Uh, owning company, becoming a CEO of another company that then hired her away from that, all backwards. But she had time with her kids. One reason why she was in Finland, and the Finnish gave her a right. year of paid family leave each time, and they paid for her college tuition, and they did everything that any woman with a young child would want to have happen. And they were saying oh, that's because we actually believe helping families is important. I mean, right. it's like duh. 
you know, so we, we got to keep hammering away on this, Mim. Let me say, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up here. This is in conversation with Frank Schaefer. I have a new book, Fall in Love. Have children stay put, save the planet, be happy. Mim's got her copy. It's dog-eared. She's read it. She showed me. It's true. She really did read it. And we talked about it. Um, this is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, my podcast. Please like it in the online sense if you like this and share it. And Mim, we are going to put uh, links that you will give my producer, Ernie, uh, everywhere so people can get in touch with uh, Motivity Care. Um, and and what you also mentioned the other thing, um, and I'm sorry, I'm so bad on names. Um, GW4W? Yeah, we want to have you back for, women for well-being. That's right. And we also want to have you back for a caregiving forum. I'm in. And, and I, you know, and hopefully Karina Mueller, my partner, can join. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think this you, has been fun, but the only thing is you're too interesting and I like you too much. So we've gone all uh, over the place. And I you, look, Frank, I mean, for the audience out there, like we literally, I heard him on a webinar. We started asking questions. We got on a call. We've been emailing back yes. and forth. But I think it, it gets back to, I think it's core, and I'm going to speak for you if you don't, but more yeah. good together. Yeah. How do we create um, stories, companies, things that create a more sustainable world? How do we so build bridges? Work with Ernie, my producer. And again, this was his note from, from him to me. I'm reading it here in the notes section. Usually I okay. pretend I'm coming up with all this stuff. No, no, I'm not that smart. <laughs> That's all, you, you didn't? Know. Come on. No, Ernie. I'm like a hand puppet. Ernie's just speaking through the earpiece here. I, don't have, I do not have an earpiece. I was joking. Okay. But Ernie's saying we want to have you back uh, for a caregiving form. And that's a great idea. So work with Ernie and let's put that together. Have great. your partner. And anybody else you want on it, and we can do Maybe it. Maybe we can get Dale on with us. Dale yes. Adkins. Yes. So work with Ernie and let's do a caregiving forum. And if it runs long and we do two or three out of the whole thing, that'd be great. Because guess what? This is a huge issue. Well, thank you. And I am deeply grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Well, listen, come back to the state safe. And until next time, and there will be a next time, God willing, okay? Yes. Talk soon. Okay. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.